Amen. Well, go ahead and have a seat. My name is Matt Rumbaugh. I serve as one of the elders here at Harvest. My wife, Christy, and I lead the small group that meets in Random Hills. And I am excited that Jeff is back. I don't know if you are. Uh, and I'm excited that he will be back in the saddle next week with us. But in the meantime, I get to be here today. So we'll make through. Now, I should give you a warning. Um, our, our normal Justin Bieber-style mic is on the fritz, so I have to use the handheld. And there's, I, I tend to talk with my hands. I'm very gesticular, as it were. So there's every chance I'm either going to fling this at one of you guys or smack myself in the head and give me a concussion. So if either of those things happen, you just give me a little grace, and we'll get through it together. Um, so something that's become pretty popular the last few years, I don't know if you guys have done this, uh, an escape room. Have any of you guys tried this? Show of hands. Yeah, they're pretty fun. My daughter and Allie and I got to do one in New York City uh, just a few months ago, so it was really fun. If you're not familiar with the concept, let me explain it to you. Basically, you and a group of friends, or maybe not friends to people, maybe six to ten of you, you're in a room, and it's sort of like you are inside a jigsaw puzzle or a novel or a movie or something like that, and you, uh, there's some challenge you have to solve to be able to get out of the room. That's why it's called an escape room. You get it? You get it, right? Yeah. See what they did there? Now, Invariably, as you get out of this room solving puzzles or clues or putting things together, you're going to run into a lock and a key, usually more than once. You'll find some key. You'll have to figure out what lock it goes into, and that will unlock a, a puzzle piece or a clue or something like that. And the more locks and keys you unlock, the more knowledge you accumulate, you see the bigger picture, more information, and it helps you solve the puzzle and get out of the room. Make sense? You guys have done this before, right? Pretty fun. Now, sometimes reading scripture can feel a little bit like this. We may look at a passage or read it for the first time. We're like, ooh, wait a minute. I don't really know what's going on here. And sometimes using locks and keys to help get through the passage can help us see the bigger picture that God has for us. And we can see his rich blessing and mercy and his character in that. So we want to look at a passage this morning that works a little bit like that. There's some locks and keys that we want to work through together. When we do that, we're going to see a picture of a certain type of blessing that God has for us. Let's go through this together. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. And I imagine for some of you, this would be a relatively familiar passage. Uh, some of the words to it might ring true. If you uh, don't have a Bible with us or with you this morning, just go ahead and raise your hand. Our ushers will be happy to share one with you. Uh, and you feel free to keep that. That's our gift to you. So if you don't have one at home, take that with us. All right, so let's read this passage together. Again, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. So Isaiah writing says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar." 
And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. All right, so there's a lot going on in this passage. We've got these very strange creatures called the seraphim. We've got burning coals. We've got smoke all over the place. Matt, what in the world is happening here? And what, what is it you want me to do with this? Well, let me explain. First key we want to look at, this, look at this morning, it involves that word temple. Temple, that's our first key. Now, the temple in ancient Jewish culture was a really, really important place and a really important concept. This would have been the place where God dwelt. In fact, the word that's used in the Old Testament generally is not the word temple as we understand it. It's God's house. The, our, the, we've, in our small group, we've been going through a series of videos from the Bible Project. And when these guys describe the temple as the place where heaven and earth meet. So it's the place in Israel where God makes his presence dwell. And so this is not unique necessarily to the Jewish culture. You know, we know that the ancient Greeks had temples. We know that the Romans had temples, the Phoenicians, the Egyptians. They all have temple, but the Jewish temple is a little bit different. For one thing, it, uh, the presence of God is actually manifest. They can actually see God's presence there. It takes place in the form of fire. We get descriptions of that in Exodus and later in 2 Kings, where God makes his presence known there in the form of fire. So you don't go there kind of hoping God shows up. You go there knowing that he is there. It's the place where God dwells. And so that's where Isaiah finds himself. He finds himself in the temple. Now, the other thing uh, about the temple, it is awesome to be in God's presence, but there's a couple hitches, as it were. Now, one is if you want to do business with God, if you want to see God, know God, if you have something you need to take care of with him in the form of an offering or a sacrifice or a ritual or whatnot, you have to go there. So if you live in Gilead or Shiloh or Bethlehem or whatever, and, and it's your time to go do business with God, you got to walk all the way to Jerusalem to do your business with God. God doesn't have a, like a, it's not 7-Eleven. You can't just go down to the corner and do your business with God. You have to go there. Now, assuming you can even get there, and it, it usually took several days journey, there's this issue of being clean or unclean. And we're talking about a ritual matter. You could not go into the temple, into God's presence, if you were ritually unclean, if you had dealt with a dead body, if you had interacted with certain bodily fluids, if you had uh, eaten certain foods. The book of Leviticus gives us a richly detailed process for what you need to do to go into God's presence. And it's around this idea of being clean or unclean. Don't go into God's presence when you're unclean. You want to be clean going into God's presence. Now, that leads us to our second key. Second key is someone who actually got this idea fundamentally wrong, and that is King Uzziah. That's who Isaiah mentions there, right there in verse 1. We're told that all this happens in the year that King Uzziah died. Matt, who is Uzziah, and why do I care about him? What's going on here? Aha, I'm glad you asked. Uzziah was one of the kings in the kingdom of Judah. And you may remember after the reign of Solomon, the, the Jewish nation split. And so 10 of the tribes, uh, the northern tribes, they stayed together. They appointed their own king. They, they took the name Israel. Two tribes stayed faithful with the line of David, uh, and they called themselves Judah. And so all throughout history, there were a series of kings that they had. All the Israel kings, they were terrible. 
all the Judah kings, some of them were bad, but a couple of them were good. Uzziah was actually one of those good kings. He had a history, he, he was a great military commander, so he, uh, the Jewish people's traditional enemies, the Philistines and a couple others, he defeated them. He was an agricultural reformer, so he built silos and wells and things like that so that the nation was less susceptible to famine and drought and those things. So great king, and he had a long reign, 56 years, something like that. He was a good king until he made a tragic, prideful, sinful mistake and screwed it all up. He messed up this idea of being clean or unclean. In fact, uh, the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 26, verses 16 through 23, tells us that story. I don't know if he just didn't know better. I think he did. I think he knew the commandments about being clean or unclean, but I don't know. He just got prideful. He actually tries to go into the temple carrying incense. So he tries to go in in an unclean state cooks up his own version of cleanness to go into God's presence. And the priest at the time says, Uzziah, you really don't want to do this. And in fact, he gathered 80 of his colleagues to try and stop Uzziah from going in there. But Uzziah in his pride and stubbornness would have it and tried to push his way through. And the scripture tells us that when he does this, God struck him with leprosy. And if you've gone through the book of Leviticus, you'll know that leprosy would make one permanently unclean. He's then exiled from the temple. So Uzziah, this great king, this great champion for the, for the Jewish people, he thinks he's clean, or at least he has his own version of clean, and he thinks he's going to stroll into God's presence. And God says, wait a minute. You know better, Uzziah. You know how this works. You know not to come to me in an unclean way. And you know what my requirements are to be clean. Don't try that with me. And so Uzziah, God, God makes him on the outside what he really is on the inside. Isaiah is unclean, pretending to be clean, or at least aspiring to a version of being clean and able to go into God's presence. And God strikes him and makes him permanently unclean. All right, well, this is sort of a bummer so far, I know. Matt. I got clean, I got unclean, I got this temple, it sounds great, God's presence dwells there, but I can't go, and I'm unclean, and this guy Uzziah screws it all up. What? What in the world's going on? Okay, it's time for key number three. You ready? You don't sound ready. Are you ready? Ready. Okay, key number three is Jesus. All right, so I know what you're saying. You're saying, what? Jesus is not in this passage. What are you talking about? Oh, yes, he is. Let's look at it together. We're actually going to skip down a little bit. Look at verse six with me. He says, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So there's this idea here that Isaiah, is, he's in the temple and he realizes that he's unclean. He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. I am in big trouble. And of course, it would have been in his head what just happened to Uzziah, right? He has seen evidence with his eyes of what happens when you go to God in an unclean manner. So he realizes he's in big trouble. And so this strange creature, who we're going to talk about more in a second, comes to him and says, don't worry. This, this thing from God's throne, I'm going to touch you with it, and you're going to be made clean. You see, you and I are not able to make ourselves clean, but God can make us clean. Well, who does that sound like? That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? In fact, in Hebrews chapter 9, it talks about Jesus as our high priest who goes into the holiest part of the temple, gives his own blood as a sacrifice to make you and I clean to make us able to stand in front of the Father. In fact, right there, what, what phrases does the cherubim use? He says, your guilt is taken away. 
He says, your t- sin is atoned for. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? Yes, that is what he does for us. He makes us clean. In fact, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 goes on to say, do you not know that you are God's temple? That God's presence dwells in you. That is radically different from what we just saw before. Before, if we wanted to deal with God's presence, we had to go to where he was. We had to go through this ritual of being made from unclean to clean. And yet we see now in the New Testament on the other side of things that Jesus does that for us. You and I can dwell in the presence of God because Jesus has made us clean. Are you with me so far? Great. Okay, so what do we got here? We got the temple is where God's presence dwells. I need to be clean to go there, and Jesus makes me clean. So now that we've unlocked these locks and keys, we're going to start to see a picture of what God has for us. And it all starts with seeing God for who he really is. Look at what Isaiah tells us in verse 1. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. There's three things right there. What do we see? We see he is on a throne. Well, what's a throne? A throne is where the king sits. The throne is a symbol of royal authority. And so Israel, or the Jewish people, had just lost their king. He had, all, he had basically forfeited his throne. He died. He's out of the picture. You can imagine that Isaiah and the other Jewish people, they're a little bit nervous about what's going to happen. You know, the old king, who screwed things up, by the way, is gone. We're going to get a new king, but who really knows what's going to happen with this guy? Is he going to be clean? Is he going to be unclean? Is he going to be a champion for us like Uzziah was? And so Isaiah, even by saying that, says, hey, wait a minute. Don't be scared. The real and rightful king is on his throne. He is reigning. We can trust him. We're going to get another king. He may or may not be good, but our real king is on the throne, and we can trust him. Isaiah also notes that he is exalted. He says he is high and lifted up. He is stationed above everything. And we can take from that there is nothing greater in authority or sovereignty than our God. He is high and lifted up. There is nothing above him. He does not have a boss. He is the very, very, very top of the org chart. He does not have to get his TPS reports signed by anybody else. He doesn't have to turn in a cover sheet. He doesn't have to, like, co-sign on memos. He is the sovereign ruler. He is high and lifted up. And we see that the train of his robe fills the temple. How many of you watched the royal wedding yesterday? Do you see me boldly raising my hand, by the way? Yeah, I'm, I'm not too much of a man to admit that I watched the royal wedding. I thought, I thought uh, Meghan looked great, lovely dress. I thought Harry could have used a haircut. I don't, his, his barber wasn't doing any favors. A little poofy up there. But um, anyway, but Meghan looked great, right? She looked, what we might even say she looked resplendent. And the train coming off her dress, I, I did a rough count. I think it went eight rows deep. That's pretty long, right? Now, I don't know how that compares to, like, Diana or or Catherine, or some of the others, but that's a pretty long train. Now, why do we care about a train on a bridal gown, that thing that flows off the back of it? We care about that because that is to the glory of the bride. That tells us, hey, this is the one to put your eyes on. This, the train makes her look beautiful. The train is part of what makes her look radiant. The train flowing off that dress tells us, hey, this is the star of the show. This is the one we want to pay attention to. And Isaiah tells us that the train of God's robe fills the temple. 
I mean, Megan's train was long enough. Can you imagine it filling that cathedral yesterday? Can you imagine God in here and he's wearing a robe and the train of his robe fills up this room? It tells us that he is radiant. It tells us that he is beautiful. It tells us that he is amazing to look at. And it tells us that he is the star of the show. You got me? All right, so there's something else uh, he points out to us. He points out, in, starting in, in verse 3 there, these, or sorry, verse 2, these creatures called the seraphim. They've got six wings, two around the face, two the feet. They're flying around. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. And I know you're thinking, Matt, that sounds weird. What? what? What's going on with this? Well, the seraphim are indeed unique. There's only one other place. Well, they're mentioned casually a couple times, but there's only one other place in Scripture where they're described in detail. That's Revelation chapter 4. Do you know what they're doing in Revelation chapter 4? They're doing the exact same thing they are here. They're flying around the throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So Isaiah might not have known that because he's on the other side of history from us, but we can see that their permanent job, these strange creatures with wings, their only job is to continually fly around God saying, holy, holy, holy. They exist to give praise to God. They exist to be continually saying to God, you are worthy, you are holy, we praise you, we give you affection and glory. That's their job. That's what they do. And seeing it, cast in the future, we know that this is not just, just their job today. It is their job for all time, for what we might call perpetuity, forever and ever and ever. And that, of course, tells us that our God is worthy of praise forever and ever and ever. And you roll that back, I have a bad day. God is still worthy of praise. There's another school shooting. God is still worthy of praise. There's some big crisis. God is worthy of praise. He is worthy of praise now. He is worthy of praise forever. And this term they use, holy, holy, holy. The word holy means set apart, distinct, other. It also means perfect. In every way it is possible to be perfect, our God is perfect. Now, some of you probably know this. The the Hebrew language doesn't do a great job at sort of comparative terms. So this idea of good, better, best. It's just hard to do that with the language. They don't have the same set of words that we do in English. So, for example, if I was trying to say that I'm good at making coffee, I would say I'm, I'm good at making coffee, which I am, by the way. Now, if I want to say I'm really good at making coffee, in Hebrew it would sound something like I am good, good at making coffee. See what I did there? And I am, by the way. I'm good, good at making coffee. If I wanted to say I was the best at making coffee, I would say I am good, good, good at making coffee. When you want to say that someone or something is the best, you repeat it three times. Well, how many times did the seraphim use the word holy? Three. Yeah, three times. They say holy, holy, holy. So it's not just that our God is casually holy. He just happens to be holy. No, he is the holiest As possible it is to be holy, he is that. He is holy, holy, holy. Well, this sounds pretty good. So Isaiah here sees God for who he really is. And just in a few short verses there, he's given us this amazing picture of a God that is worthy of praise. And if we started comparing this to other passages, we we could go on and on and on. We see that knowledge of God, seeing God for who he really is, kickstarts a process in Isaiah. The second thing we see, what is Isaiah's reaction to this? Well, he says, woe is me. He moves into a time of confession. Or, and I'm hoping to make the point to you here, he moves into a time of worship. 
Isaiah's response to seeing God for who he really is, for this knowledge of God, is worship. Now, I know many of us have this idea that worship is coming here on Sundays and singing songs, and that is really important. In fact, the word sing is the second most issued command in Scripture. Number one is praise. Number two is sing. So the idea of singing songs of praise to the Lord, really important. But the idea of worship, the concept of worship goes a little bit deeper than that. If, if the only worship we ever provide God is to come here and sing, we're not quite doing what he wants us to do. You see, worship is about wanting to be in the presence of God. In its essence, worship is wanting to be in the presence of God. And so for Isaiah, that takes the form of confession. Remember, clean, unclean. And Isaiah says, whoa, I am unclean. And I've seen what happens. My boy Uzziah got in big trouble when he tried to come to God in an unclean way. And I am unclean. Now, thankfully, God makes me unclean. And it's confession. Confession is his road into that. Confession is Isaiah telling us that he wants to be in God's presence. And praise the Lord, he makes Isaiah clean. And praise the Lord, he's made you and I clean. Amen? Yeah. So worship is about wanting to be in God's presence. And there... When he does so, he gives God devotion. He gives God affection. He gives God glory. He is saying, God, there is nothing higher in my imagination, in my experience, in my devotion. Everything I have, I give to you. I freely give you worship. So we see that knowledge of God leads to worship. When we understand and see in detail who God really is, we cannot help but be moved to worship. Now, that may often take the form of confession, whether it's us confessing our sins to one another, maybe in our, our devotions, our, our prayers to the Lord, confessing sin that we struggle with. That is the pathway. That's telling God we want to be in your presence. So Isaiah comes to knowledge of who God is. It moves him to worship. The third thing that we want to see here is that he then moves into obedience. Look at verse 9. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. I'm sorry, that was verse 8. Now, God goes on to give Isaiah pretty specific instructions about what he wants him to do. We're not going to talk about that this morning. What we want to look at is this hard attitude. Isaiah has not yet heard what God wants him to do. He does not have his marching orders from God. But seeing the glory of God and having a hard position to worship God, he's ready to obey. He's positioned to say, God, whatever it is you have for me, I'm ready. Here I am, send me. So a heart that worships God will be a heart that obeys God. In fact, Jesus even told his disciples, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Christianity knows nothing of, of prolonged pattern of disobedience. If we are cultivating affection for God, if we want to be worshipers of him, obedience comes with it. So it's a little check for us. If I have a pattern in my life where disobedience is showing its dominant, I can, whoa, wait a minute. Do I worship God the way that I say it that I want to? Do I, uh, when I go sing songs on Sunday morning with Phil and the team, am I just mouthing empty words? If I have a heart to worship, I'm going to be obedient. So you can see Isaiah's shown us a pattern here. We've got knowledge of God leads to worship, leads to obedience. Now, when we lay this out against the rest of Scripture, we see that this isn't just a pattern, it's a cycle. It's not a pattern, it's a cycle. Let me read to you from Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. This is Paul praying for the Colossians, and his prayer is that they would walk in a manner worthy of our Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Let me read it again. 
Paul praying says, I pray that you walk in a manner worthy of our Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. That's obedience language. And what's the result? Increasing in the knowledge of God. So we've got this cycle. We've got knowledge, worship, obedience, and that flows back to knowledge of God. Right? Yeah, let's do the next slide. Does this sound familiar? How many of you are getting like seventh grade flashbacks right now? Yes, my daughter Lexi, seventh grader. She just raised her hand. She just did this in school pretty recently. Yeah, it sounds a lot like the water cycle, doesn't it? You guys remember this, how this, how's this work? So water in the oceans, maybe some lakes, but primarily in the oceans, it evaporates up, takes the form of clouds, comes back to the earth in rain, maybe snow or ice, goes in creeks and streams and rivers, and where does it run? Back to the ocean. All water runs back to the ocean. Ocean, clouds, river streams, back to the ocean. So let's go back to our pattern. This one works very, very similarly. Knowledge of God, understanding who he is, his character, his plans, his purposes, his attributes, the things that make him unique and worthy of worship, understanding who he really is. That knowledge leads to worship, giving him the praise and glory he deserves, wanting to be in his presence. That flows into obedience, lovingly seeking to please him by doing what he says. And what's the outcome of that? What's our promise? That flows back to knowledge of God. You see, the thing that starts this and the thing that finishes this, it just kicks it right back into our cycle. Our reward for obedience is not a piece of gold or a nice phone or something like that. It is that much more knowledge of God. And if he is who he's cracked up to be, what could be sweeter? Nothing. Knowledge of God, worship, obedience. All right, Matt, that sounds good. Thank you for sharing that with me. Are you sure about that? Aha, I am. I'm glad you asked. Let me read to you from Hosea, chapter 6, verse 3. It's one of my favorite passages. I love this. Hosea writing says, Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. I mean, we had a lot of rain this week, right? Like five inches, six inches, anybody know? That's a lot of rain. So we've even had a picture this week of what this kind of looks like, the, what the water cycle looks like in real life. It's a lot. It's a lot of water. Can you imagine if God would bless us with his presence this way? Knowledge of God, worship, obedience. Can you imagine if God rained his blessing the way that we've seen rain this week? It would be unbelievable. It would be amazing. All right. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Matt, well, that sounds great. Thank you, water cycle. I love the flashback to seventh grade. Thank you. Appreciate that. What is it you want me to do with this? I got a couple thoughts for you before we finish up this morning. The first thing I want you to do is I want to settle on this idea of knowledge of God. Just like in the water cycle, the thing that makes that work is the ocean. That's where it begins. That's where it ends. That's where the power is. That's where the pattern, the power of this pattern is. It's knowledge of God. It's understanding who he is. And so at the risk of mixing more, uh, metaphors here, I want you to start thinking cultivate. We want to be people that cultivate knowledge of God. Think about it. When you plant a, a garden, maybe you plant a rose bush, you're going to do a few things to make sure that that plant grows in a healthy way. For one thing, you're not going to plant a rose bush next to a palm tree, right? 
The soil is not going to support both those things. A rose bush is not going to grow in the same soil that a plant does. So we want to be smart about the soil of our heart, making sure that that's a place that knowledge of God is cultivated. You're going to obviously feed it with fertilizer. You're going to water it. So we might think of that as the word of God, the Holy Spirit, fellowship, community, all those things. But there's another idea I want you to keep in mind here. You're going to protect it. You're going to cultivate that. You're going to be looking out for weeds so that you can pull those out. They don't interfere with the growth of, the, of what you're trying to grow. You're going to be looking out for pests. You're going to be looking out for bugs or if you have deer or something like that that eats that. You're going to be looking for ways to dissuade them. And let me just throw something in here. If you ever want some high comedy, you want to hear my mother-in-law start talking about keeping uh, uh, deer off of her tomato plants. You will laugh and laugh and laugh. But she's got a point, right? Because she's trying to grow tomatoes. She's not trying to feed the deer. She wants them for herself. So we want to be cultivating knowledge of God. We want to be thinking to ourselves, do I, do I really worship God for who he is? Do I have some sort of concept or half-baked idea in my head that's not God in, his, in the fullness of his presence, who he really is? Do I have some sort of false teaching baked into my head? You know, Mark Twain once said, it's not what you know for sure, or it's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't true. It's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't true. So let me give you an example. How many of you have ever heard or even maybe even used the phrase, well, God wants me to be happy? Yeah, hear that a lot. How many times have we heard people excuse sin by saying that? How many times have we heard somebody say, well, yeah, I know this relationship isn't the best, or yeah, I know I went into debt to buy that car, or I, I know I did something that, that the Bible says not to do, but I know that God wants me to be happy, and this thing makes me happy. Well, God does want you to be happy. It doesn't say that explicitly in Scripture, but God clearly wants you to be happy. But God's idea of happiness is a little bit different than our idea of happiness. We think the car, we think the house, we think the job, we think the relationship is going to make us happy. But God himself is the one who wants to make us happy. And if he, again, if he is who he's cracked up to be, if he is the best, if he is the highest, what else would make us happy other than he himself? So that's what I want us to have our eye on. How many half-truths, how many lies, how many things that sound good to our ears but aren't actually biblical do we believe? How many sort of half-formed notions of God? How many what we might call facsimiles of God do I believe? Something that I saw on a TV show, something that my friend told me, something, you know, something that I just decided for myself. This is why we bang the table so much about being in the Word of God here at Harvest, because we want you to know who God really is. And he tells us that in his Word. So we want to cultivate knowledge of God. Now, we're going to give you some work in your small groups this week where you're going to flesh this out in more detail. So I don't want to belabor this too much. The second thing I want you to think about with this pattern, with this model, with this cycle, is to consider it as a prayer. So I noticed myself starting to pray this cycle some months ago. You know, the idea, hey, God, would you grant me knowledge of you? Would you increase my knowledge of who you really are? so that I would worship you more effectively and that I would be more obedient to you. And Lord, I'm praying this knowing that as I do, you're going to give me more knowledge of you. Now, I did not have any sophisticated way. I stumbled on that. I just found that, or I don't even know. Anyway, but as I prayed this, I started to see this come to life. I started praying this for my family, and, and some really, really, some, some amazing things happened. Some things that we were really struggling with as a family seemed to fall away. I started praying this for people in my small group. And people would come on Thursday nights to our house and be like, whoa, where did that come from? You know, people just sharing what was going on with their heart and telling me something about God that richly blessed me. And I started saying, seeing people like, Matt, this is a thing that I've been struggling with 
forever, and I'm seeing now that it's disobedience, and I want to make a turn. As I've been praying this for people, I have seen God answer it in amazing ways. Now, it turns out, this is not unique to me. Um, this actually has its origins in a prayer from a guy who lived in England in the 13th century. His name was Richard of Chichester. That's hard to say, by the way, Chichester. Chichester. I got it. Okay. Anyway, so he, uh, he was a, 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 a Catholic priest there in England. This is before the, um, the, the division there. He was born into a noble family, but he sort of gave up his, his rights to do that, to serve as a, in God's house as a priest. And he would write prayers, and many of them got included in the English prayer book and became uh, hymns. In fact, some of them are still sung in England today. There's one that he wrote. I want to read it for you. So Richard writing, he says, Thanks be to thee, my Lord Jesus Christ, for all the benefits thou hast given me, for all the pains and insults thou hast borne for me. O most merciful Redeemer, friend and brother, may I know thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, follow thee more nearly. What's that sound like? Knowledge of God, may I know thee more clearly. Worship, love thee more dearly. And obedience, follow thee more nearly. If you're a musical theater fan, this may be ringing some bells for you. You guys know the show Godspell? Okay, so it's just me. Okay, so, <laughs> so my parents played this record like all the time when I was growing up. There's a song within it called Day by Day. And the writers of that musical actually stole Richard's words here. And they built a song around it. Lord, it says, day by day, Lord, day by day, three things I pray to see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, Follow thee more nearly, Lord, day by day. Now, I happen to love this song. You may not like it. DC Talk did a version of it. If you like that one, it's on Spotify. Go get it. Put it on your playlist. It's, it's a great song. I mean, you may not like it. I don't know. But it will help you as you cultivate this prayer. When you say to God, God, I love you. I want to know more of you. I want to see you more clearly. God, I want to worship you. I want to love you more dearly. And God, I want to follow you more nearly. And if we start praying this every day, I think God would honor. I've seen it in my own life. I bet he would do an amazing job in our church. Can you imagine if we prayed this for each other? If we prayed this for our families? God, give me more knowledge of you. That I would worship you and obey you. If we prayed this in our small groups. If we prayed this for our ministry leaders. If we prayed this for Jeff and for Phil and their teams. I just think there's great power in this. Knowledge of God. Worship, obedience, and it flows right back to the knowledge of God. I believe God would honor that prayer. In fact, let me pray it for us right now as Phil and the team come back up. And what better way? We want to see God for who he really is. We want him to show us. We want to cultivate affection for him and devotion to love him more dearly. And we want to be like Isaiah when he says, I'm ready to send someone. We want to be right there up front saying, here am I, send me. We want to follow him more nearly. Let's pray it together, and then we'll go out with a time of worship. Lord God, you are worthy. You are holy. There is none higher than you. You stand alone as worthy of affection and devotion and worthy of our praise. And Lord, just like Richard wrote and just like that song sings, Lord, we desire to see you more clearly. God, that we would know who you are, that we would understand your character, your attributes, the things that make you so awesome. Lord, we would love you more dearly. Lord, we would give up idols. We would give up anything that compromises our ability to love you and be devoted to you. Anything that is set higher in our affection, Lord, we give that up 
for you. And Lord, we would follow you more nearly to obey you, to move out these patterns of disobedience and do the things that you call us to do. And Lord, we know that when we do this, we will increase in knowledge of God. For God, what is better than to know you and to please you and to live in your presence? Lord, thanks for the words of Isaiah and thanks for this prayer that we can pray knowing, Lord, that you stand ready to answer it and give us the reward of yourself. Lord, we want nothing else other than you glorified here in our church and our families and in our community. So we give you praise and glory and we say this in Jesus' name, amen.